You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues in a unique spiritual perspective based on the principles of the Baha'i Faith. For information on the Baha'i Faith itself, our listeners are welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or they can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Ray Elliott a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts. He's involved in a number of local associations, including the local chapter of the NAACP and the Amherst Interfaith Council. He is currently serving as president of both associations. I asked Ray to describe for me where he grew up and what it was like growing up there. I grew up in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Back in, uh, I was born in 1924, so I grew up during the Depression, uh, in Cambridge. I lived in Cambridge uh, until I uh, went into the service. That was uh, when I was 17, 18 years old uh, when I went into the service. Well, Cambridge, you see, the, the problem we had in Cambridge was that the, uh, the black community was uh, in one part of the, t- of the town, and uh, in East Cambridge uh, was most of the black community, and I grew up in the in the white part of the town of the city, the white community. And what happened was that uh, uh, we we just were not accepted. When, as a matter of fact, going back and forth to school, we had to fight our ways back and forth because we were picked on uh, by bullies and uh, had fights and. Uh, called all kind of names and uh, ridiculed because we only, I think there was only three families, uh, Afro-American families, in the grammar school, the whole grammar school. So, and we were always um, uh, focused. Actually, my mother uh, was called up to the the school many times because of uh, my being accused of things which I really wasn't wasn't, uh, guilty of. Primarily because they felt that I was the instigator in many cases. I feel that it was because of my uh, because of my race. But uh, in general, there was no true acceptance uh, socially in uh, the Cambridge community. In the third, I'm talking now about the twenties and the thirties. Now, how is it that you ended up living in a white neighborhood? A, a reason why we would we uh, settled there is because the landlord owned the home that we were renting, and he was Afro American, okay. and uh, there was only probably uh, three or four Afro Americans that <clears throat> that owned property in in that area. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> My dad, when he came back from the First World War. He wanted to uh, to join the veterans of uh, foreign wars, and at that time, uh, they weren't accepting black Afro Americans, black troops, into the. It was segregated, and, uh, and so he formed his own post, Isaac Wilson Taylor Post, in Cambridge, and he became the commander of that post. So this was the first black uh, veterans of foreign wars post that was formed uh, in in Cambridge area. And uh, since he settled there and, uh, and was teaching at the high school, um, my mother, who was a nurse, a registered nurse, she then uh, started a, a rest home because the blacks were not able, were not able to afford uh, to, um, to, be, to go to um, the white rest homes. It was too expensive. So my mother... Uh, uh, opened up a, a rest home, and she eventually had 20 patients at a minimum wage, barely making a profit, just so that she could serve these uh, low-income uh, black uh, families. 
I asked Ray how living in a predominantly white neighborhood affected him. Because we were oppressed and because we were not accepted socially, invited to individuals' homes, invited to parties when we were young, to birthday parties and things like that, even though we played with the with the with our peers, they would never invite us to their home for a birthday party or mm. any kind of excitement. And because and this and this was painful, and so and then being called names almost every day of the year um, by bullies and, and racist adults and whatever. I think it created in us a compassion for those that's, that are oppressed because mm-hmm. we were experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the black community where their social life was around the church mm-hmm. and therefore they really didn't come in socially in contact or uh, with, with whites so that when they had birthday parties they went to black birthday you know, families. Mm-hmm. And so where I was exposed to it daily. And then, you know, and, you know it, was, it, was so, it was so difficult for me and my brother, who, when, you know, when we were attracted to, to the white girls when we were eight, nine, you know. Right, sure. Uh, and we're told by our parents, you know, no, you can't, uh, uh, you can't send a birth, uh, Valentine's uh, card to that young lady. Um, and you can't do this now. And we were discouraged from, uh, you know, to creating any kind of a relationship with uh, with the whites. You know that when I was in the, serving in the segregated army, it, when they sent me south to Biloxi, Mississippi, it was the first time that I really felt understood what black folks had to suffer from, uh, in the South, even though I had heard about lynchings and people disappearing <coughs> and in all kind of Jim Crow and injustices, I never really <coughs> really uh, internalized it or really understood it or felt it until I experienced it. And one of the things that I experienced was so profound, I still remember it today. I remember when we went to town, when we were down in Biloxi, Mississippi, we were told as, uh, that if we went in town, we were only to go into restricted areas. And the restricted area was black community. And we should go buddy style, at least two. And I was so naive and young. I went in town one day alone. And when I drifted into a white area unknowingly, suddenly realizing it, I looked for a bus stop. I found a bus stop, and there was a group of people waiting for the bus. And I said, well, I better step close over to the, near the curb and away from the crowd, the group, uh, and wait for the bus. And as I was standing there, this big, burly young man comes over to me, and he says, I'm, I got a uniform on now, and I feel, you know, it's kind of safe, although I'm in the white section and uh, off-limit area. He comes up to me, and he points down to the gutter, and he says to me, step down there. And I looked at him, and I says, why did you tell me to step down there? And he says, where are you from, boy? And I says, I'm from God's country. I'm from the north. He said, that's what I thought. He said, you folks come down here and think you cause all kinds of problems and trouble, and you think you're going to try to change things, he says. And so he got red in the face, and as he was talking, the group of people started coming around closer to me mm. to see what was happening. Mm-hmm. I got scared, so I stopped walking away from him. Mm. And as I was walking, he was walking right behind me. He says, "What did you, well, you know, what have you doing in this area? You've up to something. You've been doing something." It is well known in the South that the blacks have been accused of things falsely, mm. and I realized that. So I started walking faster, and then I started running, and everybody in that group that was waiting for a bus started running after me. Oh, my gosh. And they were yelling all kind of things. You, you've been up to something. You've done something. We're going to get you. Mm. It was the first time I really felt what I feel black folks felt when a lynch mob was mm. following you. Mm-hmm. It was a fear of death, of lynching or being lynched and whatever, that I'll never forget. Wow. And that was, the, that was the first time I really understood or had a, 
a better feeling of what oppressed black people mm. had gone to in the South. And there were many, many stories like that. But, uh, yeah, the uh, in the North, you see, the papers, the newspapers were not, in the 30s, 40s, and, and uh, they were not publicizing all kind of violence, you know, racial uh, issue, incidents and, and lynchings and, and, and mob, mob mentality stuff. They weren't publicizing it in the North. Who was publicizing it was the uh, uh, the uh, worker, the worker magazine was publishing it. No, tell me about the worker magazine. The worker magazine was the was the communist uh, uh, um, um, publication. And it was a national magazine. Or? It was national, and and it was it was a communist paper that would advertise would publicize the oppression that was going on in the South, the lynchings and all this, they mm. carried the stories. Wow. Mainly to attract blacks into the Communist Party mm -hmm. because I know they, I was approached many times to come to their interracial parties and, and uh, you know, they just lay out the red carpet for you, for blacks to, to attract them. Mm -hmm. and, and offered jobs up. They said, you know, we can get you a job and if you come and join us and we'll train you. And so um, that's that's the only way. Uh, uh, and the awareness mm -hmm. of what was going on mm -hmm. in, in the South. Yeah. See, I when I volunteered, it was un, unwillingly, unknowingly volunteered. I was tricked into, really, to tell you the truth. How's that? Well, you see, I was at Northeastern University, and I was I was going to sign up for the ROTC. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was 18 years old in the first year, and so I was walking downtown one day, and this recruiting station, mm -hmm. and a couple of mm -hmm. white guys there recruiting, and uh, this was in 1942, and they were recruiting. And uh, they called me over, and they says, uh, uh, you know, how about uh, signing up? And I says, well, I want to sign up for the ROTC. I said, I'm going to, when I go back, you know, I get back to school, I'm going to sign up. And they said, oh, you can sign up here. Mm. Well, you see, I, being naive, <clears throat> didn't realize this, that they were tricking me. So anyhow, mm -hmm. two weeks later, I was at Fort Devens. I was, oh, boy. I was in the standing army two, mm -hmm. <laughs> two weeks later. So I was an unwilling volunteer. So this was 42, so uh, it was during World War Two. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was in 42, in, in December of 42. And uh, I recall that... Uh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, um, you see, if you got over 110 um, on your IQ, mm -hmm. you had a choice of what branch to, to, to serve in. Mm -hmm. I wanted to avoid the infantry. Mm -hmm. And so, and some of my buddies were in the Air Force. There was a, there was a Tuskegee experiment that was going on as far as to determine whether blacks could fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, to prove that they had the coordination and uh, the courage and, you know, and all that to go with it, mm -hmm. uh, and the abilities and an intelligence and all that. And so there was a pilot program going on, which had started the early part of the 4042. And my buddies, one of my buddies was in it, and other buddies were, were, were trying to get in. So I enlisted in, in this, in the, to the Air Force. In uh, uh, pre-flight training, Mm -hmm. They put you through a, a bank of uh, psychological tests, uh, psychiatrists and psych psychologists. Uh, they interviewed. I had told them that they asked me, "Have you ever fainted in your life?" In your life? And uh, I said, "Oh, sure, no problem." Oh. Uh, and I said, "He says, uh, why didn't you tell us that?" Oh boy. When you know, in the preliminary mm -hmm. uh, questions. I said, well, there was nothing. It was abnormal conditions. Mm -hmm. I said, I said uh, one time standing up in a hot theater, I fainted. Mm -hmm. Another time I got hit in the head, I saw the blood, <laughs> I <laughs> fainted. Mm -hmm. and, you know, another time it was something like abnormal. Right. Yeah, situation. He says, don't you think it's an abnormal situation to be a mile up in the air? <laughs> in a million-dollar airplane? He's worried about the plane. Yeah, right. So they washed me out. Oh, that's a shame.
That's a shame. But I came closer to going into the 99 Pursuit, the black cad uh, cadets. What's that, 99 Pursuit? The 99 Pursuit was the final uh, uh, fighter squadron, mm -hmm. uh, a black fighter squadron. You know, at that time, the Air Force was segregated, and they, and they didn't have, they weren't taking anybody into the Air Force uh, blacks. And mm -hmm. So that was a, it was a test program. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was responsible for getting the government to give the blacks a chance to prove they could fly. Mm. And they uh, made such great records when they come back that uh, now it's uh, recognized with many medals, mm -hmm. that squadron. Wow. It's in Okinawa and Saipan and all through this Pacific. Mm -hmm. and, you know, when I get to, <laughs> you talk about things that you, you never forget. You know, you always have a dream when you're young mm -hmm. of going to Hawaii. We got to Hawaii <laughs> on our way to the Pacific. Uh -huh. We stayed there, you know, uh, and, and uh, uh, I don't know, a few weeks. And so when we got there, we said, oh, man, these brown women are going to embrace us. There's not going to be <laughs> any kind of prejudice. We're going to have a ball. Mm -hmm. We got to the one who was scared of us. Uh -huh. So we couldn't figure it out. So, you know, we finally got to clocking to some of them, and one of them, you know, they said that the white soldiers had told them that we had tails, oh, that boy. we stunk, that we had all kind of derogatory things uh, about us. That mm. scared the heck out of them. Oh, boy. And so <laughs> it took a while to, you know, to change their high minds about it. Right. But everywhere the flag went, it seemed like racism, racism mm -hmm. followed. Mm. All through the islands, uh -huh. everywhere, yeah. in the offices, because they gave us white offices, you know, black mm. troops, white, white. offices, mm -hmm. and uh, generally they gave us the bottom of the barrel, you know, these ninety-day wonders. <laughs> they, they, you know, young officers that not much older than we were, right? That they'd taken three months of training and put in charge of us. Yeah. So anyhow. I was a I was a company surveyor, and I had to survey airstrips. Mm -hmm. So as an instrument man, there was you know, the Marines had cleared uh, security area, mm -hmm. except for up in the hills when they'd be firing on us, the snipers, because they dug into the hills and they, you know, into the caves, into the hills. Never had to thank God. Never had to shoot a, a human being. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the blessings. I asked Ray what he did when he got out of the service. Well, the, the, and, and that, in that period, uh, there was what you might call overt uh, discrimination. In, in, a, in a sense, it was de, de facto segregation in the housing. There was de facto segregation in the restaurants. You would sit in a restaurant for many hours before you'd get waited on. Um, and, and there were many ways that they... They uh, uh, marginalized the uh, people of color uh, in in the work area. There were limitations as to what opportunities there were, mm -hmm. and uh, so that the uh, the uh, t at that time uh, there was the uh, still the uh, thinking that people were. Of color were uh, had less capacity, uh, less intelligence, and uh, mm -hmm. many experiments were done to try to prove this. Uh, talk about discrimination! Oh. In Cambridge, Harvard University. If you lived, if you were born in Harvard in Cambridge, mm -hmm. Harvard University had a special scholarship. You know, for for the, those that were born in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And I had heard about it uh, a little bit. Anyhow, I applied to Harvard University. I'd been in Northeastern before I went in the Army, and mm -hmm. I applied to Harvard University. I had good marks. You know, the whoever interviewed me in the beginning, they told me, they said, uh, uh, we're not going to be able to uh, admit you uh, because we think you're going to be hitting your head against a brick wall. Oh, boy. I, I didn't, and I, on what basis, I don't know they based that, but being black, I figured, because all my marks were good. Mm -hmm. So I applied to McGill University. 
I applied there for two reasons. One, I started there in in uh, engineering physics, engineering physics. It was a new course, mm-hmm. and they were the ones that offered it. And uh, so I started there in engineering physics, and I was accepted. And one, in the second year that I was there, I was told by someone who had transferred in their second year to McGill. Um, that McGill was the Harvard of Canada, was recognized as, a, was thought of as the Harvard of Canada, and that the courses that he had been taking similar, he said, were much more difficult at McGill. Mm. And so I, you know, I had proven that right. I had the capacity and ability to do it. It was very exciting because uh, coming from... Uh, um, a community, uh, Cambridge, which was, there was a lot of prejudice and racism in Cambridge uh, at the time I was growing up. But then uh, coming uh, from that type of community, which was uh, then living in a cosmopolitan community like Montreal, which had actually represent, I think it represented many, many different countries, especially the Caribbean so there were a lot of Caribbean people from the Caribbean and uh, from England, that uh, and Europe, and so that was a good experience because I experienced no real discrimination or prejudiceness while I was at school there. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned that you're a, a chemist, uh, so you you are a chemist in of uh by training and uh where did you work uh as a chemist i worked at tracer laboratory in boston and what what my laboratory uh, had the responsibility of doing was to um to te- to test the radiation fa- fallout around the world uh, from many from the bombs that have been uh, dropped in hiroshima and nagasaki much of that uh, radiation was still in the atmosphere and was was uh, falling. The radiation fallout was contaminating many areas of vegetation in many parts of the world and also contaminating uh, the uh, different uh, minerals and vitamins in the air. So my job was to, to uh, monitor the radiation fallout around the world and... Uh, to um, uh, to also to uh, test uh, uh, radiation uh, on the uh, sub- nuclear submarine, which was was uh, one of our major problems that we had. The, we would when the, when the nuclear submarine or the Nautilus uh, would uh, would dock, we would run down uh, on the onto the Nautilus and take off samples of the loop water. We would then take it to our laboratory, and then we would test for induced activity, which is induced into the minerals that were in the water. Mm-hmm. And this was mainly uh, for the protection and the safety of the, of the crew. Mm-hmm. So we had many other different uh, areas that we were working with. And, uh, we, didn't, we weren't exposed to a high-level radiation. This, this was uh, low-level radiation. It was mm-hmm. it was shot life in, uh, radiation. The purpose mainly uh, of the monitoring this radiation fallout was to determine whether different countries were testing the a, the um, a bomb at the time. It was the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. and that was the way to monitor whether countries were testing. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long did you do this? I did that for 10 years, mm-hmm. and uh, from, from that, uh, I worked on the uh, Nautilus. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the Nautilus, uh, on the At- Apollo. I worked in Wilbraham at, the, at AFCO Corporation, where we, that I was working as a thermodynamist, uh, designing the heat shield for the Apollo, and they were using resins at the time. Mm-hmm. And then how long were you in uh, Wilbraham? I was there about six years, or maybe longer, probably six or seven years. Mm-hmm. And then I went, I wanted to, uh, I guess, 
what happened was getting ready, to, I was changing jobs. I, I uh, applied for a chemical job, a chemist job mm-hmm. uh, at a pharmaceutical country, company, mm-hmm. thinking that it would be research in their research laboratories. But when I uh, was interviewed, it turned out that uh, it was a job for being a, uh, a detail man. A detail man was to talk to doctors and hospitals and nurses about the use of, meta, of uh, prescription medicine and how to use it, whatever. And uh, so they encouraged me to be trained to do that. And so they, so they gave me uh, a training equivalent to one-year medical school. And uh, I continued uh, detailing doctors for probably three or four years when I began to lose my sight. Mm. About how old were you when you started losing your sight? That was in 1975. And so you can do the math. I was born in 1924. And so what was your first indication? The first indication was when I was detailing uh, doctors, I was, uh, every now and then, my, my supervisor would, would go along with me. And uh, he noticed that I was having trouble driving, and uh, I had many accidents after... Uh, over a period of a year or so, I had two or three accidents mm-hmm. in the company car. And uh, so they decided that I should have a, my eyes checked, and that's when they discovered. And what was it they discovered? Well, it was misdiagnosed in the beginning, but they thought I had macular degeneration, but it turned out later years that I found out that I have pigmentosis, macular pigmentosis. And what is that? That's an explosion of pigment in the eyes. And uh, it's not reversible, and uh, it, it is uh, the prognosis generally is um, ten to fifteen years uh, after after it's been discovered. But it's been a lot longer than that, no? Yes, it became dominant uh, some years ago, and now it started up a couple of years ago mm-hmm. uh, to become active. Mm-hmm. And once it becomes active, then it's a short period of time when it becomes, um, I begin not to be able to see any light. Mm. How well can you see at the moment? I, I can only make out uh, outlines. I can't make details out. I can't see features of a face or whatever. Mm-hmm. Although you ha- have this uh, debilitation, you certainly seem to be quite active in the community. You've eventually ended up in Amherst. How did that happen? Well, that's uh, something that we didn't really plan uh, to happen uh, because we were really well settled in uh, Medford, Massachusetts, Uh, but my daughter needed a babysitter. So so, uh, she asked if we would come up to help her, uh, and so we did. And so we moved into the area to, to help her and we stayed ever since. Mm-hmm. I know you're quite active, not only in the Baha'i community, but in other uh, venues as well. Why don't you tell us what are the various things that you're doing? Well, one of the things which I get a, a great deal of gratification from is working with the Veterans Project, educational project, where we um, go to colleges, high schools, and... and uh, Lock, lockdowns in jails, and we share with uh, the the occupants uh, and the students. We share with them our experience in in uh, serving in, especially serving in a segregated army, and what it was like living in a segregated society in uh, in the forties. I also. Um, I've been working uh, with the NAACP. I've been the president of the NAACP for the past uh, two years um, uh, for the uh, Amherst branch, which we cover most of the western part of Massachusetts, uh, north of Springfield. One of the one of the big things that we do is to to work with the young folk, young young Afro Americans 
in creating initiative and uh, leadership. And also we work with trying to uh, encourage registration, voter registration during uh, voting time, in, in, in between periods too of voting time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to, uh, to become aware of, uh, of different uh, issues around the, the country that uh, would be of concern. Um, and supporting the national um, office, uh, national branch, which does most of their work in uh, uh, legislation and uh, in the legal aspect of the trying to encourage certain legislation uh, against uh, discrimination and inequalities and injustices. And how long have you been in, uh, associated with the NAACP? Oh, since I was 18 years old, I guess. Okay, so well before you came to Amherst. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's always been an association that has been near and dear to you, I guess. Yes, because I, I, when I got out of the uh, service, uh, I immediately got involved pretty uh, uh, quickly with uh, uh, being, beca- I became the youth advisor for three different cities. That was in Lowell, Havel, and, uh, uh, let's see, Lowell, Havel, and, and uh, Mer- uh, forget the other town, Lawrence, Lawrence, uh, Lowell, and Havel. Mm-hmm. And I had about 80 or 100 youth that, uh, I was a youth advisor, and, and uh, I had to, in many cases in those days, had to be a uh, character witness when they were have, getting into problems and trouble. Can you give us one example? Well, in one case, uh, there was a young man, he was only 18 or so, and he had been at a at a bar, and uh, apparently someone started calling names and at him, mm-hmm. and uh, he pulled a knife, mm. and uh, he uh, threatened to to fight this person. Mm-hmm. Well, he was arrested, and um, the judge wanted to make an example of him, and so he gave him the maximum, which was which was six months. Mm-hmm. Um, in the correction house of correction, um, and what what year was this, Ray? Roughly, uh, uh, this was roughly about nineteen sixty three. Okay. Yeah, I would just stay, explain to the judge uh, about this young man, about how uh, he has been uh, uh, never in trouble before or whatever, and that he has been working uh, cooperatively with uh, with other youth and um, they would ask if he had if I if he had ever been in uh, taking drugs or anything like that and so I would say to my knowledge that I uh, knew nothing that was uh, of a derogatory uh, of him mm-hmm. so you were like an advocate right in addition to um, those things I think you're also involved with with more yeah, the, I've been uh, president of the NA, uh, the uh, Amherst Interface Service Council for the past uh, three years. And what, uh, what uh, churches or religions are uh, a part of that? We have representatives from 14 different churches, and uh, we have uh, representatives from the Buddhist church, uh, we have from the Buddhist religion, from the um, uh, Hindu religion, the Baha'i religion, um, the Jewish religion, um, and the Muslim religion, mm-hmm. plus mm, all the denom- many denominations of the Christian religion. What, what kind of things do you sponsor? Well, one of the big things that we really focus on is first. Uh, collecting food for the survival center. This is one of our big things of service to the community. The other thing is to educate ourselves about each other's faith, Mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And so we hold uh, what we call the study circle each time we meet when 
when he, one of the members of the, of the Interfaith Council has, has an opportunity to share their, about their faith community and their spiritual search in, in finding that faith. Mm-hmm. So you have, you're quite busy. Oh yeah, the uh, there are, then of course I'm, I've been on the spiritual assembly of the the highs of Amherst mm-hmm. for many years. Yeah. Now you speak of a spiritual assembly. What is that about? It's the administrative body of the, uh, the local community, Baha'i community. Mm-hmm. So there's a Baha'i community in Amherst. Oh, yes, there's been a Baha'i community in Amherst since, uh, I think, 1940s. I asked Ray how he ran into the Baha'i faith. Well, I think it's because I was really open to um, to, uh, spiritual quest because I was on that quest. But actually what happened was... uh, I was in charge of a laboratory, tracer laboratory, and in the laboratory there was a technician, a lab technician that worked under me. And he was an agnostic. He had been investigating different religions. He didn't believe in institutionalized religion. And so he had been investigating all the different major religions in the world. And he had come to the conclusion that either they all were right or they all wrong. Because Mm -hmm. one could not be right and the other's wrong. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he was always telling me, you know, about the fact that they all taught, they taught the same spiritual values mm-hmm. in each one of the major religions, and also that the only difference he saw was the social teachings, mm-hmm. and that they were different according to the needs of the people in that age mm-hmm. that the man, the prophet appeared, mm-hmm. say the Zoroaster and Krishna and Buddha and Muhammad and. And uh, Moses and all the, all the major world religions that that they all had taught the same spiritual teachings, and so then he he's he, he's still looking for truth. He's searching for truth, mm-hmm. and so one day he comes in and he tells me. Now I'm Catholic, and at the time I was Catholic, brought up staunch Catholic, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's why I mentioned that I was on. A spiritual quest because the thing that bothered me, there were many some questions in my mind that I had no answers to. I couldn't, my mm-hmm. rational mind could not accept the analogies of the, the things that I was taught by the catechism. Mm-hmm. See, see mm-hmm. I, I was brought up not studying the Bible, but the catechism, and boy, was that mystify everything. It was a, mm-hmm. <laughs> it mystified all, all spiritual things. Mm-hmm. And so, I was open to looking and searching. And so, anyhow... Um, Let me regress just for a second, and then yeah. we can continue. Uh, you said you, were, you grew up Catholic. Were there many African Americans in your church? No. There was only a handful. Mm-hmm. In the whole parish, there was very few. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, 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 I really wish that... Uh, I don't know, that my, whether my parents had been more involved in the church... Uh, my mother was Catholic, father was Baptist, but I wish that she had been more involved because they had scholarships for my for blacks. I never knew about. They never told us. You know, we went to catechism. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the Sunday school for years, and you think they would have taken aside the nuns and told us. You know, now look, mm-hmm. you might be qualified for scholarship. Mm-hmm. That was set aside for minorities. Mm-hmm. But no, they they um, there was only a handful of blacks in the in the parish. It was mm-hmm. a big parish. Mm-hmm. So I guess your family being Catholic, I guess, goes back to when their their parents were Catholic. Yeah, that was another thing. You know, if you're born into a Catholic family, you automatically are Catholic, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is one of the things that bothered me too. And because the Catholics were proclaiming, you know, telling, teaching us. Then unless you're a Catholic, you're not saved. Mm. In those days, they were very, not I wouldn't say fanatical, but they were very dogmatic about that. Mm. And so my dad being a Baptist, you know, when I got to be around 11 years or 12 years old, I was concerned about my dad being saved. Mm. And I said, a just and loving God, how could this happen? be? And so, you know, in a small, young mind, 
it created a lot of confusion mm-hmm. of thought. And uh, so that's when I, I think that's when I began my spiritual search. So this fellow you were referred to gave you this sort of this challenge, and then he gave you this book to read. So tell me about the book. The book he gave me was called A Thief in a Night. And it was, a, it was written by, a, he, was a, he was a reporter. He was a sports reporter uh, in this country, in California. And uh, he searched through all the archives in the world and looked into all the different religions of the world, all the faith traditions, like the Native Americans and many other uh, groups. And he compiled their prophetic writings. This was a time in history when all the prophetic writings apexed at one period in history, and that was in 1844. I had never heard of it, the year of the millennium. Mm. But it, it was in encyclopedias or anywhere you can check. It was a time when all of the uh, prophecies of the of primitive people had been ful- being fulfilled. The native, one that impressed me a lot was the Native Americans in this country uh, had a prophecy that the Great Father would appear in the East. So uh, okay. many things were apexing at the time. I see. This book somehow rang true for you in some, it seemed to have an effect on you. Oh yeah, I, as I was going through it, I was still trying to prove, prove it wrong. That uh, he was, that this was a false prophet and all that, and that the, these prophetic writings was just a coincidence. By the time I got three quarters away to the book, I, I said, "Yeah, this is it. The, mm. the, he has proved this." Becoming a Baha'i is a, is a lifelong process, mm-hmm. as you know, and uh, and it's a rocky and challenging uh, road, full of tests and trials. Mm-hmm. But the, the, but the, these are these are blessings mm-hmm. because. These tests and trials that that one is confronted with uh, uh, helps us to to become aware of our weak weaknesses mm-hmm. because we bring into the because uh, I know that I brought in a whole lot of baggage and so becoming a Baha'i is more than being a Baha'i it's it's a lifetime process which I'm still going through but uh, it's a joyous occasion joyous journey. Uh, were you married at the time? Oh yeah. I had been hiding the book from her. Why is that? Because I wanted to make sure that it was true mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I'm searching for truth. Before I got her involved, it's sort of a protective way of looking at it, you know, protecting mm-hmm. her from this, what I thought was a way out possible thing. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, there were had been... So many, um, uh, like Father Divine and uh, many other different uh, uh, prophets that were proclaiming that who they were. She had been looking, she had been taking my, I thought I hid the book. <laughs> she found the book and was reading it as I was reading, you know, when I wasn't. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and that's when I began to, and get the answers to the questions that I had mm-hmm. that were not answered in my Christian experience. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they were just basic fundamental questions mm-hmm. that everybody were baffled mankind for life for the past mm-hmm. you know centuries. Questions that they've been asking, everybody's been asking, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, at least that was the way I felt that they were asking and it were just simple things, and I, you know, that I was confused about the Trinity. That was a biggie. Hmm. Uh, and and baptism. I used to say to myself, "Now baptism, I they, they, they baptism by fire and water." I says, "All every time I go to a church, uh, a black church or other churches, they're dunking people in water, and where's the fire? Hmm. Fire was the passion and the love for God." To the Creator, and uh, and and the water was the the word and the 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 creative word, the, mm-hmm. the writings and the teachings and the spiritual revelation revealed. And so he answers many of the questions similar. So that's what started getting me excited to start to change and having a purpose, mm. because you know we as as 
people, uh, black folks, we had been conditioned over and over to so much uh, missing, uh, how would you say it, um, to begin to almost internalize what people are saying about us, that we were, had less capacity than others, that we, uh, uh, we were only three-fifths human, and, you know, all this crazy mm. stuff mm-hmm. that scientists at the peri- in that period were saying about people of color. Mm-hmm. And so the, through these teachings, I began to see who our, our true reality, my true reality was, and that was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience of beginning to find out who I am. My purpose in life, because I never knew. I said I used. I used to wonder, you know, uh, uh, what's the purpose? Mm. And so, it, it 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 was all of the different principles that that were revealed that were necessary to bring about a unification of the world, world peace, which is the message that Prabhupada brought. That he came to unify the uh, the world and bring about justice. A tremendous revelation to me about many things. It changed. It changed me because it it, it, it let's say it gave me hope, and and uh, it gave me an understanding of my reality, that I was a spiritual being having a material experience, not a material being having a spiritual experience, and that my purpose in this world was finally, uh, I could understand, and that was the analogy that was given about this world being like similar to the embryo of a woman's embryo, that we are, in the embryo, we, we are d- developing arms and legs and eyes, but we can't use them in that world. And if we don't develop them, we're born into this world handicapped, mm-hmm. if we don't develop eyes and whatever. And so that then answered about what our purpose was, to, to develop spiritual qualities in, uh, in this world so that when we go into the next world that we will not be um, handicapped and not have these qualities. So, so that made a, a big difference. Then the fact that the oneness of the, uh, the human family, the teachings of the oneness, that we are all one people, was was a wonderful uh, revelation to me, too, that we are all connected as one. Because all my life when I heard about uh, love thy brother as thyself. And love your neighbor, as you, love your neighbor as, as you would love yourself. As you would love yourself. And so when we're talking in the teachings that we are given by this new spiritual knowledge that's been revealed, he says the, that we should love one another more than ourselves. And so, I don't know, it just, it just uh, opened up a great new awareness. And then the prayer, I, never, I could never really feel that my faith was on solid foundation because there's always this dots of doubt that was coming through. And even prayer, I used to wonder, what's, you know, what's this prayer business? You know, everybody's praying, my enemy's praying for, to be saved, and when I'm in the army and I'm praying to be saved, and what's this business of prayer? And now, and Baha'u'llah explained prayer, that it creates an attraction to our source, which is, which is our creator. And the more the more we become attracted, the more understanding we have mm-hmm. of who we are, our reality. And the more understanding we have, the more attracted we are to the sun. I just loved it. Mm. And that reminded me of Muhammad when uh, in his writing says that prayer is like a, a ladder to the celestial heavens. Mm. And uh, that is step by step. It, mm. The attraction and more understanding and attraction. It's like one level, you know, just stepping right up and getting mm-hmm. higher and higher level of, a, uh, of, of uh, spiritual awareness. Mm-hmm. And so that, you see, so then I see my purpose was to prepare myself because I heard so many times when I was growing up, they said, 
people would go around and saying, uh, we, pray, we, we prepare for this world like it's never going to end, and we prepare for the next world like it's never going to begin. Mm-hmm. And people were always saying that, you know, <laughs> in a sort of joking way or something. But I began to see the reality of, of uh, eternal life. Mm-hmm. If there not have been a, a Baha'i, um, I think that probably I would not... Uh, I just had been drifting in many different directions, uh, uh, looking for a purpose in life. I, I think that I would not have had that inner peace. I would not have had hope. I would not have had uh, spiritual uh, confirmations that have come quite often in many in my life. I would not have had the the uh, healing grace that being having communication with my creator with with god in prayer and other ways having conversation it seems like it just it draws a healing grace that is keeps you happy and fulfilled and feel of service to mankind as being the most wonderful service that I can give and praise of God. Hmm. So for somebody who um, has this disability of being able, not being able to see, I think you're busier than the most poke. Well, I keep myself busy because uh, mainly to increase my circle of friends uh, is one reason and uh, where I'm not, where I've been retired since 1975. Mm-hmm. And this is one way to do it and be a service to the community and to um, and to my fellow friends. I also think you have a youthful spirit. I think that probably keep you being so involved in the community and giving service to the community, I think, can only uh, accentuate your youthful spirit. And uh, I find it uh, fascinating. You like golf, don't you? Yeah, I've always liked golf. I remember when I was young, <coughs> we, we used to make a a miniature golf course in my backyard. And, uh, but at that, uh, in that time, back in the 30s and the 40s when I was growing up, um, the blacks were not allowed to play on the golf courses uh, in, in, in the north or in the south. Any, many, they, they were not welcome. And so I wasn't able to uh, play. So I've always wanted to play golf. And so... Just recently, uh, my friend uh, had encouraged me to give it a shot. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And that's what I've been doing. I've been out on the practice range, uh, shooting and practicing. And even though I can't see the ball, I find that I'm able to connect with it and uh, shoot it. And, uh, and I can um, uh, shoot it straight ahead. So Now, how, 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 can you, how can you hit the ball that you can't see? Well, there's a technique, and uh, one of the ways we do is that we measure the distance that we're going to put the ball in front of me by two and a half fist lengths from my body, from my foot. And then I I picture that ball at that position, Mm -hmm. and then I just focus on that spot in my mind, and uh, then... I go ahead and swing. So uh, by uh, being uh, by using all of the uh, correct ways of uh, of, of standing and uh, swinging, then it seems like it works. Hmm. Now I know I haven't quite I haven't been out on the course yet, but I'm getting ready to. Yeah. So any day now we may see Ray uh, out there. Yeah. Playing golf. Don't worry, I'll yell for. <laughs> well, Ray, thank you very much. I really uh, found your story interesting. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today on A Baha'i Perspective. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you can visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call our toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. We hope you will join us next time on a Baha'i perspective.
always on the bright side When there's so much going down on the other side It's like a living a bubble with no trouble And problems don't exist I check on them, that ain't the case at all It goes back to the time when I was very small I didn't mind but size and age My papa used to say You can always look at the negative But you should always live in the positive So I try every day to live in that way What is and how much they can And be the first to complain about nothing And life going their way The attitude's there that I can't do nothing about And very happy with just breathing in and out The ones that when you say let's go make a difference They'll say nah that's okay So I don't waste time on the trip side Cause I do know the real on the flip side And I'm crystal clear every day That's why I say Listening to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM.